Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. come here from really different places and it's really fortunate that we all get to spend this week together. We have three more days and we should spend them being appreciative and open and taking really good care of each other. Thank you, Evan. It's beautiful. <sighs> the city smells so good. <laughs> and the weather is incredible. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's, it's spring inside and out. Um, One of the haiku poets that I love, uh, his name is Isa, Kobayashi Isa. And um, he has a wonderful haiku where he says, um, under the shade of cherry blossoms, nobody is a stranger. (laughs) And one of the translations is, under cherry blossoms, there's no such thing as a stranger. Under cherry blossoms, there's no such thing as a stranger. Uh, if you ever uh, are in Japan, in, in cherry blossom seasons, like everyone at any chance in the day uh, puts a tarp, like blue plastic tarp, under cherry trees, and they just sit there and drink. <laughs> and drink sake. Uh, families, everyone from the office, and like at the end of the work day, you can't find a tree. And, and they're just sitting under the tree, like enjoying the cherry blossoms. And the amazing thing about the cherry blossoms is they, in, at the beginning of April in Japan, it's really cold still. So it's like blossoms in winter. Because we call it spring, but it doesn't feel like spring yet. Here it feels like spring, but in most areas in Japan, it doesn't really feel like spring. And in the morning on the news, they show maps of the country and where the blossoms are. <laughs> and, um, and they last a week. And then that's it. Which is why they're so beautiful. It's like us, right? We're uh, pretty impermanent. And because of our bodies are so impermanent, they're so beautiful. If your body was permanent, it probably wouldn't be so beautiful. So, all of us who have impermanent bodies, except for people in Southern California. (laughs) Right, Sarah? Our bodies are beautiful like cherry blossoms. Um, So, uh, I think this is a good metaphor for uh, our uh, community here, Mm -hmm. and also for uh, our practice. When we're under cherry blossoms, there's no such thing as a stranger. When you're connected to your breathing and who you are, and your experience, um, there's not so much compartmentalization. Can we sit a tiny bit closer? Everybody feels a little bit far away this morning. Maybe you don't feel that way, but like from this vantage point. You really want to get close to cherry blossoms. Yeah, there's no strangers. (laughs) 
Um, and uh, this is the paradox that we live in. On the one hand, um, the world is really gorgeous. And on the other hand, things are just fucked. And um, both of those uh, realities are true at the same time. Um, so everybody has to do something, and nobody can do everything. So that's why you should sit, because you have to do something. and. Uh, you never know what the right thing is to do. Uh, so it's really important uh, you learn how to take care of your reactivity. So you know what it's like to move into the world um, from a space that's less rehearsed and less habitual. Um, one of the big challenges for relating to people and one of the big challenges for relating to issues and one of the big challenges for relating to our internal experience is how we think. Sometimes I want to say to people that uh, it's great that you're interested in enlightenment, but deeper than enlightenment is just the ability to change your mind. Like to have the ability to actually go, oh, I don't think that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So for a lot of us, I think one of the reasons why we're here is because we see that some of our thinking processes um, are so powerful that they really keep us out of our lives and out of um, intimate relationships. And um, that as beautiful as the cherry blossoms are, we won't notice 1% of them because uh, we have so much to pay attention to inside us. We don't see anything. So one really helpful way of working with this is the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mental states. And I find that one of the most helpful ways of working with uh, mental states is to label them and to note them so that you know mental states are mental states. And um, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. And we're going to do a little exercise together. That'll be our morning together. And, uh, and then this afternoon, we're going to drill this in deeper. So yesterday, I said, um, when you're sitting, uh, you're following your breath. And thoughts are in the periphery. And I'm sure everybody is aware of this now that you can have this somatic breathing going on with thoughts just moving around in the background. But then sometimes the thoughts come into the foreground and that will happen differently for different people. Some people they're fragments, some people they're sentences, some people they're like ideas, some people they're images, sometimes they're clusters of images, sometimes they're just big narratives. Um, it doesn't matter. You can just notice that it's happening. And I've always found it very hard to notice that it's happening unless I label it and I say thinking. And I find this incredibly helpful. But the labeling doesn't work that great unless you double the label. So because if you just go thinking on the heels of saying thinking, you're going to have thoughts about it. So you're sitting and then you just go thinking, thinking. And that's like, whoa, there it is. Um, that's not how I learned it. Um, the way that I learned this practice um, was um, doing retreats. I, I, I used to do retreats at a place called the Insight Meditation Society. And one of the teachers there used to teach labeling as um, going through the senses. So when you're listening and you notice sounds, you say hearing, hearing. Smelling, smelling. Tasting, tasting. 
touching, touching, thinking, thinking. So you're just doing it with all the senses all the time? And that never clicked for me. Um, and as you're going to see, uh, as you facilitate meditation, you'll teach what clicks for you and you won't teach what doesn't click for you. And that really never clicked for me. I felt like it was just too much labeling of too many things. And for me, it didn't feel necessary to, to get into that level of precision. Um, so I've just taken what I've learned about labeling and like really simplified it. Thinking, thinking, future, future, past, past. And I don't know if anyone teaches it that way, but I find that it's really, really helpful. Future, future, past, past. Um, so much of our human life is mediated by words. So let's not pretend that we don't live in the world of language. Um, let's not end meditation technique by saying, oh, we're just always underneath language, because that's not how we work. So let's use language to recognize language. It's like if you fall on the ground, you need the ground to get back up. Right? Or as Molly said the other day, um, if your trauma is in relationship, you need relationship to heal. And I'm sure we've all had that experience. Like a relationship ends and you're like, I am never getting in a relationship ever again. I'm done. Yeah. When, when, Karina and I, when Karina and I started dating, um, we sat down and I had like a whole list of things that she should know about if we're going to continue. Yeah. And one of them was, I'm not interested in having children. Like, we will not have kids together. And she's like, that's great. I feel the same way. And she really felt that way. Yeah. And then like a year later, it was like, let's have babies. <laughs> plural, plural. It wasn't even let's have a baby. It's like, let's just have babies. So. Um, I wanted to read to you something by a teacher named Mahasi Sayada. In Vipassana meditation, what you name or say doesn't matter. What really matters is to know or perceive. While noting the rising of the abdomen, for example, do so from the beginning to the end of the movement, just as if you're seeing it with your eyes. Do the same with the falling movement of the abdomen. Note the rising movement in such a way that your awareness of it is concurrent with the movement itself. The movement and the mental awareness of it should coincide in the same way as a stone thrown hits the target. Your mind may wander elsewhere while you're noticing the abdominal movement. This must also be noted mentally by saying, wandering, wandering. Not interesting? When this has been noted once or twice, the mind stops wandering. In which case, you go back to noting the rising and falling of the abdomen. If the mind reaches somewhere, note reaching, reaching. Then go back to the rising and falling of the abdomen. If you imagine meeting somebody, note as meeting, meeting then go back to the rising and falling. If you imagine meeting and talking to someone, note talking, talking. So you see, he's really going with it. I, I won't go through the whole thing. But the whole point is that um, when you really recognize what's there with this double word, um, immediately there's some distance from it and you can see it slightly more objectively. And let's not forget that words are really important. <laughs> <clears throat> a really good example is appreciation. You might appreciate somebody, but if you don't say it, they don't necessarily know it. So you might live with somebody, and you might go through the day thinking, oh, that was, I, you know, I noticed the flowers they put out, or I noticed the, that they cleaned up after breakfast, and that there were so many dishes because I didn't clean up after dinner last night. But if you don't say to them, I appreciate that you cleaned up, or I appreciate that you put the flowers out, um, they don't know. So something about the appreciation um, instills a deeper gratitude in us when we say it out loud. And also, uh, something happens in them, because certain words are really profound. 
Um, another good example is uh, a promise or a commitment or a wedding. Right? You're getting married, so you can go through the motions, or you can really embody what you're saying. So I, I work with two students, two beautiful people, and I'm officiating their wedding in June in uh, New York, in Hudson, actually. And um, my, uh, my work with them has been, so they said, you know, we really want to make this important to us. So we meet once a month. I meet with them on Skype. And one of the things we work on together is um, writing vows. We work on writing vows. So they're each working separately on their vows. So they write their vows, and then we edit it to, you know, I edit it with each one of them so that they really say what it is with no cliché. No clichés. Really speak from your heart, but not generalized. Really, really specific. What's your vow? Yeah. And then after they each have them nailed down, then actually now we're in the process of them sharing together uh, what they've each written. And then the other thing we do is we have a seven people in the community of their friends and family who are going to stand up during the ceremony and make vows to them. So it's not just them making vows to each other, but the Sangha, the community, is making vows to them. This is how we're going to support you. Because uh, a nuclear family is impossible. No such thing. Just like a nuclear self is impossible. It's like nuclear power is impossible. So... Um, <clears throat> If you just sit there at the wedding, kind of spaced out, and someone says, you know, will you take so-and-so, blah, 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 and you think internally, yeah. it doesn't do anything. You have to say, yes, <laughs> right, with your whole body. So, because um, you might sit there and be like, I'm a, I'm a Zen person, and I'm like not into words. I'm like, I do non-duality. <laughs> Right? And you're like, I'm like beyond language. And then at the wedding ceremony, you're just like, it's just words. It's just language. People, meditators think this way all the time. It's just words, just constructs, just language. I don't really have to practice. Right? No, actually. You have to say something. <laughs> so that's what we're doing in us. Every time you go thinking, thinking, it lays down a new line, a new pattern, so you can recognize that stream. Um, also speaking of Zen, for those of you who, who do precepts or make formal vows, um, and we're doing this in the wedding ceremony with this couple that I was telling you about, is um, for all the vows, I'm going to ask them after they make the vow if they can uphold it. And I'm going to ask them three times for every vow. And that's a, that's a practice from the Zen tradition. And, and, and the way that that occurred in the Zen tradition is that the story is, is that sometimes people would ask the Buddha a question and the Buddha wouldn't have time to answer. But if anyone ever asked three times, he would always answer. There's a story about someone who comes to the Buddha named Vajagota and says, um, uh, could you explain to me the, just the core of your teaching? And the Buddha says, I haven't got time now. I have to go on my alms rounds. And Vajagota says... You or I could die at any moment. Could you please explain the teaching? And the Buddha says, this is not a good time. And his assistant, Ananda, saying, no, this isn't a really good time. And then the person says, we could die, both of us. And I would never get the teaching from you. And then the Buddha says, okay, sit down. <laughs> and then the rest of the story is that the Buddha gives him the shortest teaching that he's ever given anyone, which I won't get into now. Um, so, to sum up, the function of labeling is that <clears throat> it creates a fuller acknowledgement of what's actually happening right now. And I think you've all probably had the experience of acknowledging something happening in you, and everything relaxes.
And in a way, this is sometimes the paradox of naming, is that when you name something, you miss things because it's just a name and it orients you at the same time. So um, when you're in a relationship and there's something going on in the relationship that's stressful and you keep meditating on it and paying attention to it until you're able to name it, when you name it, something between the two of you relaxes because like, you have a better sense of what it is. Were you going to say something? No. Okay. Um, yeah, and you're like, oh, now I see it. And then you can say something like, oh, now I see you've had a really hard day today. <laughs> and before it was just, you know, them complaining. And your reaction to it. So one technique for uh, labeling practice that you can work on is thinking, thinking. Um, another technique that I really like to work with is wanting, wanting. And that's my reinterpretation of the Buddha's description of paying attention to lust, is wanting, wanting. And it's very, very subtle sometimes, because sometimes you sit still and you want peace, or you want to get still. And you don't even notice that like, there's kind of like a wanting in your practice to want to get really peaceful. And then it gets in the way. And it usually happens after you've had a really peaceful practice. So it's like, imagine yesterday the sit was really good. And then today, it's like your mind's a bit busier. And instead of acknowledging what's happening today, you have this subtle, like, oh, it was so good yesterday. I, want, <laughs> I just like want to get into that zone. I notice it in myself. Like when I sit on my own, I sit longer than how we sit as a group. And so sometimes, you know, I ring the bell because I'm like, okay, we need to, you know. But I always feel like, oh, I should just keep going like another hour. <laughs> So the point of labeling is that you're disentangling from your experience. The other thing that's really important about labeling wanting, wanting, so I mean like wanting peace, wanting whatever, is that what you start paying attention to is the tone of the inner voice that's labeling also. And you pay attention to the tone of the inner voice that's thinking. So let's, let's look at that more clearly. So let's say the labeling is past, past, future, future. When you start to label past, past, future, future, it's just kind. Like the label just comes up on the breath. Oh, past, past, future, future. It doesn't have like a judgment in it. Like past, you know. Um, but also what you start to notice is you notice the tone of the voice that's doing the thinking about the past. And you notice the quality of your somatic experience as you notice that voice, right? Like when we think about the past or when you think about the future or you think about certain subjects in the past or certain topics in the future, there's like a tone and an energy we have around it. Sometimes the tone is really harsh. Sometimes it's bored. <laughs> Sometimes there's complacency. Like, oh, I'm just going through those motions again, thinking about the high school hallway. <laughs> this can be very, very helpful for people who judge themselves negatively to learn how to cultivate this ability to note, note, label, label, uh, without any judgment in the voice that's doing it. Somebody who has chronic pain, when they start noticing pain, they're going to go, oh, pain, pain. But over time, they're going to be able to say, pain, pain, and see the voice that describes the pain. 
rather than identifying that voice as the observer voice, some separation. So you could like be like, rage, rage, and not add anything on top of the rage, rage. Like, rage, rage, I'm an awful person. Just rage, rage. So again, I don't want to make noting too complicated. And like I said earlier, I never connected with noting that's kind of more complicated where you're noting everything. So I'm going to suggest um, sometimes you practice wanting, wanting. Sometimes you practice thinking, thinking. And sometimes you practice past, past, future, future. My personal favorite is past, past, future, future. The last point that's uh, important is that um, <clears throat> you want to note and you want to feel what's showing up without putting yourself in it. So just noticing what's happening without adding a me. Past, past, future, future. Not, oh, I'm in the past, oh, I'm in the past. And then when you do that, whatever you're looking at brightens up. You can see it more clearly. And as a, a more spiritual endeavor, what starts to happen over time is you start to see that there's a brightness in the world. There's a brightness that's in everything. But it's not the brightness of you seeing it. It's the brightness that just exists in cherry blossoms and in sidewalks and in other people. It's not because of you. See? Do you remember um, <clears throat> when we used to have cameras <laughs> that you carried around? And um, when you took a picture of people, there, uh, there was a glow in their eyes that was red. Uh, the camera is taking a photo, but it's capturing the light from the flash of the camera in the photo. And the light is so bright that you see the blood in someone's eyes. So the camera is actually taking a photo of itself, taking a photo. And I've always thought, this is totally how people operate. You relate to other people, but you're relating to other people relating to you and how you relate to other people, seeing yourself in other people while you're relating to other people, which are not other people. <laughs> in other words, a camera is always inscribing itself into the image that it's taking. And as humans, that's no way to live. We can't keep living like that. We can't keep inscribing ourselves into every person that we meet. Because then whatever they say, we're going to filter through what we think about it. And then we can't listen very well. And also, uh, most of what we think is wrong. <laughs> And we are living in the age of selfies. And the selfies are not just on Instagram. The selfies are in how we communicate with each other. Isn't that an impossible thing to not have a filter? It's, it's impossible to not have a filter. Yeah. But the more you recognize the filters that you're creating, the more intimacy can emerge. Right. Because you see, oh, this is getting in the way. And that's the cool byproduct of doing the labeling practice right. is that you sit still and you go past, past, future, future and then you start noticing it all the time and during the day. People are talking to you and you're just like uh, what, what's a like you I had this recently I met somebody last week who's in her early 20s she is like a super organized person, um, is really good with like administrative stuff. And I met her in her workplace. And as we were talking, she was talking to me, I was thinking, I wish I could work with this person. She would help me so much with administrative things like in my world that she, 
And so the whole time we're communicating and I'm thinking um, about us in the future working together. Right? And then after a while I was like, oh yeah, there's a human being right there. <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't listening at all to what she was saying. So you never stop filtering. Yeah. That's how the mind works. You're catching the filters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a good practice to call yourself out. When you mm-hmm. Yep. When you're kids, one of the ways you develop a sense, when you're a kid, when you're kids, when you're a kid, one of the ways you develop a sense of self is through language and um, through autobiographical memory. What you, mem what you remember and what you tell yourself about what you remember. And um, so parents or caregivers um, or teachers have a responsibility to really help kids have a coherent sense of themselves. And um, one of the things that kids really need in order to have this experience is a combination of um, a safe and loving environment uh, where they can feel their emotions and it's safe. And another thing that's really important is to have time to be alone. Because when do we reflect on our autobiographical selves? Mostly when we're alone. So kids also need to be alone to have time uh, to do this. Uh, especially, you know, like at eight. Well, kids actually don't develop critical analysis till they're about seven. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's so important. Like anything, you must, oh, but everyone can remember something that they were told that they're still carrying when they were the young you know, from younger days, from their parent or a friend or whatever, because mm -hmm. you don't have the ability to set them to go, oh, that doesn't sound right. So they've been telling me I'm bad, bad, bad mm -hmm. all the time, I'm not good enough, I'm not worth enough, whatever. And they, that's how we hold on to that, that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But conversely, like when you do imagery and that with kids, they're amazing at that age because they don't have that filter, so you have them riding yeah. magic carpets away from their pain and they, they're like that. Mm -hmm. They're there, mm -hmm. you know? So it, it's a beautiful way the brain works um, to protect, but also in other ways it, it doesn't, I guess. Unless you tell them good things all the time. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the things we know about young people, is young kids, is that um, they say to themselves what they hear yeah. Yeah. Um, in their environment. And what we would say probably as meditators is it's a little bit deeper than that. It's not just that they say to themselves what they hear around them. It's that they say it in the tone that they hear around them. So then you're an adult and you start sitting still and you realize, wow, the voice that I have about myself, like the voice that I have when I talk to myself about myself, has a tone in it that's been internalized from somewhere. Um, maybe it's really rigid because uh, we saw in our familial environment rigid ways of interacting. So we then internalize this more rigid way of um, talking to ourselves. Um, Parents who talk out loud about their feelings, um, especially around conflicts, 
tend to have kids who have a better understanding of their own internal emotions because they have a vocabulary for it. And that's uh, one of the interesting things about um, emotions and their regulation and literacy with kids is that um, there's lots of studies done about how kids who um, have uh, 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 emotional dysregulation, um, if they're exposed to more and more literacy, stories, reading, being read to, um, mythology, that they then develop a better way at regulating the emotions in themselves because they have more language for talking to themselves about what they're feeling. <clears throat> so you're in fifth grade. You have difficulty keeping pace with reading. You can't stay focused. You're not really that interested in the material. And um, maybe you have bad books, or maybe you have bad teachers, or maybe you have a really bad diet, or maybe the lights in the classroom suck, and you just can't stay focused. And at home, your parents don't talk to you in a way that really gets in. <clears throat> So you have difficulty keeping pace with reading comprehension, and you start to have trouble reading, and then very quickly you hate reading. And when you do read, you don't get anything out of it, because you read passively, because you now have an idea about reading, and you just don't get into it. And because you're reading passively, you're not building language abilities. So what happens is your language problems cause reading problems. And then your reading problems create more aggravated language problems. And then those language problems make it hard for you to follow directions, make it hard for you to be assertive, make it hard for you to communicate. Um, but most importantly, um, it affects the language that you use internally to talk to yourself. There's less language, less vocabulary, i.e., uh, the way you talk to yourself becomes more narrow. So you might think, what does this have to do with meditation? Well, you know, it has everything to do with the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of thinking, which is mindfulness of the way that we think. And the way we think includes how we talk to ourselves. And how we talk to ourselves is an ethical practice. So a lot of kids with language problems um, need ways of regulating themselves. And they have a hard time doing it with language. And your capacity to talk to yourself and imagine and have visions um, is related to your ability to cope with your inner life and with your social life. Or it's really simple, like you get in trouble because you're depressed, you're in high school, and you don't have a voice inside that says, yeah, I should tell someone I'm depressed. Or, hey, I'm depressed. You just don't have that voice. You don't have the voice that says, um, I feel down and that's why I'm smoking pot every day. And so then you don't have the voice that says, oh God, if I smoke pot every day, I'm going to wreck my brain. And I could get addicted and my mom's going to kill me if she finds out. And I could get arrested. I think it's not that <laughs> they have the voice, they yeah. don't have the vocabulary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So to say that they don't have a voice is not accurate. Right. <clears throat> yeah, the voice is in there. You never lose the voice. 
but you might not trust it. Yes. And, and you might not have the vocabulary. But there are people who can't hear voices in their head. They don't have the pathway. Like there's kids, the whole 90 kids here in Vancouver, mm -hmm. they cannot talk to themselves. So they, they can't think cause and effect because they can't actually say, oh, if I do that, that's what's going to happen. They actually cannot replicate sound in their brain. It's so sad. And when they first get it, they think they've got something crazy going on because they've finally heard their voice. Um, Don't you think that talking to yourself can be an imaging? Totally. And it can also be yes, physical vocabulary, too. Absolutely. But a lot of them don't even have the ability to have images. And you need images for reading. And they don't have that ability. So that's what they're here for, you know, these kids, to have programming. But it shocked me. I didn't know that these kids couldn't hear. But that's, not, that's the minority, right? That's on that the extreme minority, yes. side of that spectrum. Well, there's so many kids out there that have it, but no one recognises it because no one asks them because they all have behavioural mm -hmm. problems and everyone labels them. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you, you work with them. So, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, we're, we're finding it's... Um, there's been a profound shift, like, in the last 10 years, and I think we're thinking it's technology. It's because mm -hmm. parents now are texting all the time. Like, people don't call each other on the phone. Yeah. They don't even hear mm -hmm. passive language going on between adults. Mm -hmm. And there is a profound, yeah. like, people, the kids now, I mean, from very affluent areas, mm -hmm. and their language, expressive language mm -hmm. ability is really stunning. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. And then there's all these, and then you're getting all the behavioral issues, yeah. and then, that's it's, it's, like, it's just, it's really it's alarming. Like, yeah, it is alarming. If you guys don't want to, mm -hmm. like, I, I, I would buy bed at a neighborhood, but I see parents, their kids are playing in the neighborhood, and the parents have their, they don't know how to turn books anymore. There's been a study done at Royal Children's. They can't turn books. When they're given a tablet, they just know how to swipe. They're given a book. And this is serious. I was involved, so they can't do this action. Hmm. That's what they do. From two years old upwards, we've got it. I just want to reel this in a little no, bit because I, I don't want to get into sorry. talking about. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the reason why I'm talking about kids is because I'm just trying to give you some logic around how this inner voice and the tone of this inner voice develops over time. Um, but I just want to make it slightly more complicated. So in Zen, there's a saying which is, uh, "You can't eat a painted rice cake." If you're hungry and you see a painting of a rice cake, can you eat it? And this is always a, a trope that's used by Zen teachers, started in China, um, to remind people that your cognitive world um, is such a small piece of our reality. And then in the 12th century, there was a teacher named Dogen uh, some of you probably know who he is because I talk about him a lot. Um, and he said uh, something really profound. He said, uh, the only rice cakes that there are are painted rice cakes. All rice cakes are painted rice cakes. What does that mean? That's so interesting. So on the one hand, the tradition's always saying, get beyond language, go beyond language. Real rice cakes um, are not painted. Just like we would say, like, go actually sit with a cherry blossom, not an image of the cherry blossom on your computer screen. Um, so listen to what Dogen says. It's really important for our labeling practice. If you say a painting is not real, then the material phenomenal world is not real. Unsurpassed enlightenment is a painting. The entire universe and the empty sky is nothing but a painting. Since this is so, there's no remedy for satisfying hunger than a painted rice cake, other than a painted rice cake. Without painted hunger, you never become a true person. <laughs> so what he's saying here is, our hunger is always a painted hunger. Rice cakes are always painted rice cakes. There is no true reality that's outside your painting of reality. 
which is your comment earlier. There's no person you relate to that's outside of the your filtering of the person you relate to. Every hunger is a painted hunger. Every gender is a painted gender. Every thought is a painted thought. Every mountain is a painted mountain. You can't get outside of that. <clears throat> so there's this paradox where on the one hand, we need to see reality as it is. And on the other hand, um, the only way you can do that is to keep waking up from the story you're telling about reality. But then the ego's going to lay down a new story about reality. And that's why we have to have a continuous practice. And there's no such thing, Dogen says, as unsurpassed enlightenment. That idea is also a painted enlightenment. It's a painted idea. And it's only because we see that rice cakes are painted that we can satisfy our hunger. So how does this work in sitting practice? What does this have to do with your sitting practice? How do you note past, past, future, future in a way that's really soft and receptive? Because if you're sitting still and you notice past, 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 future, future, when you do that, future, future, you see the thinking going future, future, and you see it from a place that's really soft and receptive and quiet. And then you come back to your breathing. You, there's no add-on. And then you're doing two things at once. You're coming back to the present moment, and you're depriving the inner, rigid, or judgmental voice of oxygen. And this is what our whole practice is when it boils down to it, is our practice is to deprive violent structures of oxygen. The meditator does it by coming back to her breath again and again and again and again and again. And then we also see structures of violence in our society, and we deprive those structures of violence in society through uh, making art and music and literature and all the forms of art that um, break down rigid narratives and make people dance. So I want to end just with some drawbacks to noting practice. One, um, if you don't do it in a soft way, it becomes mechanical. Sorry. It becomes mechanical. Yeah. Uh, number two, um, it can be done for too much. It can be done too much and for too long. So, like ten minutes. Um, sometimes, but don't make it your central practice. Yeah, like if you're sitting for half an hour, yeah. try doing it for 10 minutes. Don't do it for the whole sit, because you also just want to rest cognitive function also. Yeah. And you were asking me to do it last night, and so I just did it nonstop. Yeah. Um, it's been helpful, but is that like in our informal practice? Yeah, in your informal practice, you can do it as much as you want. But in sitting, I also want you to have the experience sometimes of just letting go of technique. And just enjoy sitting. Is it better, Michael, to find some stability first and then go into the labeling, or do the labeling first and then go into sort of... Some, some people like to start the noting right off the bat. And some people like to wait until they get kind of concentrated and then note. It's really up to you. Yeah. Um, as your mind becomes more still, you want to adjust the volume of your noting also. So as you get quieter and gentler in your body, 
you just want the noting to be so so soft. Maybe even a little whisper. Um, the way that I was taught a noting practice is that 5% um, of your energy is labeling and 95% is experiencing what's there. So if past, past is showing up, 5% of your attention in that moment, I mean, of course you can't like say, oh, just five, oh no, that was 7%. <laughs> so a very small amount of energy is going into saying past, past. But 95% of the energy is just feeling what that's like, experiencing what that's like. Some, like, because some people do 95% focus on the labeling and 5% knowing what their experience of that is. So we want to keep connected to our experience. Um, and uh, one time I was on a retreat and I was doing labeling practice. And I remember I got this idea. Maybe the label should just be yes. <laughs> like I would sit. And whenever something started distracting me, I would just go, yes, yes. <laughs> and then I, I, would, I found that so helpful. Because like, yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all here, yeah, okay. So sometimes you'll notice the label sometimes turns into something else, which can be interesting too. So um, what you're really saying when you're doing labeling practice is, I see you. <laughs> I see you. Yeah, I see you painted ego. Right. And then it starts to like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I see you. Yeah, and then it's like. <laughs> goes away. Yeah. Yeah. I see you in the same way that when you're, a when, when you're with a kid and they can't label some emotion they're feeling and you help them say, oh, this is jealousy. <laughs> and then, I, oh, and you explain a little bit about what jealousy is. What are you really doing there? Mm -hmm. You're saying, I see you. Mm -hmm. And you're helping them look inside themselves and go, oh, I, I see you, jealousy. Which is what we all want, to be acknowledged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, under the shade of the cherry blossoms. There's no strangers. So um, I'll stop here. I feel like I covered a lot. And maybe we'll just uh, take questions or comments.